Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so moved in our hearts already by the words of these songs. And our heartfelt response is, we need you, Lord, every single day. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We are inadequate, insufficient in ourselves, but you are enough. So that if the world crumbles, if the world is in chaos, the world is full of hatred and hostility, Father, we thank you for the fact that you are enough and that you are the one who sustains us each and every day. Father, thank you for this week that you have shown us your goodness and your love and your kindness. You have in the midst of various trials that we experience of a spiritual, emotional, or physical nature, in the midst of all of that, you have sustained your people. We thank you for that. Thank you for being a God of grace who extends common grace to people who are rebels, people who don't trust in your son. You are kind and good to people who are undeserving. And we're just so grateful for that as well. Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us in our hearts to focus, that we would be undistracted, that we would, Lord, remove those things that we are weighed down by, and that we might remember that you have called us to live well under our suffering and trials. James 1, that we are to consider it all joy whenever we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Father, help us to seek your wisdom in the midst of those trials. Father, I do pray for those who are hurting this morning. I pray for those who are, uh, Lord, even home, who are not able to be here with us, who are going through great difficulties. Father, I pray that you would comfort and encourage them this morning by the reality of the end times and the last days and what you have in store for your people, even in the midst of pouring out your wrath upon those who reject Christ. Father, remind us this morning of the fact that you have lavished your people who are in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Lord, the passing um, pleasures of this life no longer have an appeal to us because of what you've done in our hearts. Father, give us soft and tender hearts to listen to your word this morning. Help us not to walk away unchanged, unimpacted, unaffected by the things that we hear from your word. May you do this amongst us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23 is our text for this morning. Mark 13, and if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. This is God's Word. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. But we are here in Mark 13. As you know, in the last few Sundays, we've been looking at what is famously known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called this because Jesus spoke these words, this mini-sermon, um, at the top of the Mount of Olives. It was here from the top of the Mount of Olives that the Lord um, told his disciples um, about the future end days, the last days. From this location at the top of the Mount of Olives, the Lord and his disciples can look across the Kidron Valley and have a bird's eye view of the majestic, glorious temple of Jerusalem. Now, just before this, if you remember much to the shock 
of the disciples. The Lord Jesus had told them that this awesome temple in Jerusalem was going to be leveled to the ground. And this revelation, of course, prompted them to ask Jesus when these things would be. And what would be the sign of his return and of the end of the age, according to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. And of course, by the end of the age, the disciples were referring to the return of Christ and his kingdom on earth in accordance with the Old Testament promises that were made. They were expecting a messianic kingdom on earth. That was their expectation from the Old Testament. You see, to them, now that the Messiah was here and they believed Jesus to be the Messiah, they were, and they weren't, they were anticipating now the kingdom on earth in the immediate, in the here and now for Jesus to usher that promised earthly kingdom. They don't have, you see, on their radar, the concept of a second coming. Of a second coming with a, with a gap in between, with a waiting time in between, with an interval time. In fact, if you remember later on in Acts chapter 1, they are still thinking the disciples' earthly kingdom, when they ask Jesus right before he ascends to heaven, is that at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. See, they're still expecting Jesus, Jesus' kingdom in the here and now. They're expecting the establishment of his kingdom in the immediate. But Jesus, in essence, pushes the pause button here in the Olivet Discourse. And he reveals to them in verses 5 through 37 the events that will precede a second return of Christ, beginning with the great event of the destruction of the temple, which we know happened some 40 years later in AD 70, the destruction handed to the Israelites by the Romans. Jesus likens these events then to birth pangs, to birth pangs that like labor pains that progressively worsen and intensify right before a woman's birth, so these events will escalate right before the return of Christ. As we've noted, in one sense, we have in the last day since the time of, we have been in the last day since the time of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. In one sense, we are in the last days. In one sense, the first century, the last 2,000 years, and even into the present, we've experienced and we've tasted of some of this chaos, of some of what Jesus describes here. But in another sense, you can't read all of the events of Mark 13 and say that all of these things have taken place. Because what is described here is greater and more intense than anything ever before seen in the history of the world. Our Lord Jesus has told us that as the return of Christ draws near, there will be growing, intensifying, uncontrolled deception in verses 5 and 6. You saw that. There will be unparalleled division in verses 7 and 8. Unprecedented disasters in the middle of verse 8. Natural disasters. Unequaled distress in verses 9 through 13. We've seen that the last two Sundays at verses 5 through 13 really describe mostly the first half of the tribulation, but it covers all seven years in a different sense. But mostly that first half of the tribulation. It's pretty bad. But as bad as that first half of the tribulation will be, would you believe that it only gets worse? It only intensifies more. It only escalates even more. In fact, Matthew 24, 21 calls the second half the great tribulation. The great tribulation. And it's this great tribulation, these last three and a half years of the seven, that we now have the opportunity to look at this morning. Here in verses 14 through 23, we see our Lord teaching on this great tribulation that is to come upon the world, that you and I would be ready for what is to come. And that you and I would be resolved to fulfill our mission here in this world. Now listen, I realize these last few weeks especially that these messages on eschatology on the last days, on the end times, are a bit more technical. But these things are important for our understanding of future things because they impact, don't they, the way that we think and the way that we live in the present time. Amen? I don't know about you, but when I spend time thinking about how the story ends 
And what Jesus has guaranteed already and has procured for us who are in Christ. And when I think about the judgment of people who reject Jesus in the last days, it gives me perspective. It shapes my my sense of living with a sense of encouragement and comfort in this world. It shapes my ability to be able to, to experience God's peace, experientially speaking. An experience of joy, as I know that God will keep His promises, as He's always kept His promises, He will do so in the future. And I think it shapes our perspective and our focus in fulfilling what Jesus has left us to do here in this world. We are moved towards fulfilling our mission all of the more. So these things are very important because our perspective is shaped. It impacts the way that we live and the way that we think in this world. So I hope that you are, that you are being impacted by these things and praying that God would help you to see the implications of the future times for the way that you live, brothers and sisters, in the here and now. As we look at this passage, verses 14 through 23, we're going to look at it under four main headings, okay? First, I want you to see the ultimate sign. The ultimate sign. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, there's the ultimate sign. Standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Now stop right there. You know, oftentimes when we read our Bibles, I'm sure... If you're like me, it's, it's so easy to come in with our certain presuppositions and miss the, the small nuggets of gold in particular passages. And here's one example of that. That little short parenthetical statement there, let the reader understand. You see that? That is an important little statement for two primary reasons. For one thing, it's a statement by Mark himself, the writer of the gospel, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, highlighting the importance of the sign that Jesus mentions here, the abomination of desolation. Two, it's also important because it tells us that Jesus is not only speaking of his, to his present audience, but he's also speaking to all future generations of people who will read these words. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand what? The abomination of desolation. That ultimate sign. As we saw last week, this sign is a direct reference, if you remember, to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And it's also mentioned in a couple of other places in the, in the prophecy to Daniel. In fact, Matthew 24, 15 explicitly mentions Daniel the prophet. And abomination, that word is a, is a code word in the Old Testament for something that happens that is detestable. Something that is idolatrous. For something blasphemous that the Lord hates and abhors. That's what abomina- an abomination is. It's an action that is so bad, so abominable, that it brings desolation. That it causes um, people to desert and abandon a place all together. Once I was trying to explain this to a group of guys in our intensive men's training a few years ago. And with a sort of puzzled look, one of the guys says to me, Hmm, so what you mean is, it's like when a, when a skunk releases its odor, right? When a skunk releases its odor. And he says, the act is an abomination, And its effect is desolation. Everyone wants to run. Okay. Told this guy, I guess if that works for you, right? Now, of course, this is referring to something much greater, I told him. And it is. It's referring to an idolatrous act performed in the temple that profanes the temple itself. A foreshadowing of this was an abominable act in the 2nd century B.C. There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Some of you have read about him and have asked about this individual. He was the king of Assyria at the time. And Antiochus Epiphanes committed an abomination by erecting an altar to the pagan god Zeus right smack in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. An abominable act. Then, as if that wasn't enough, Antiochus Epiphany proceeded to sacrifice pigs on the temple altar. I mean, this was the the ultimate unthinkable act to the Jews. 
This was a blasphemous, idolatrous, abominable act by this pagan ruler. That was an abomination of desolation as well. But that was a foreshadowing of this, of the ultimate abomination of desolation. Here the Lord is speaking about something and someone even greater than that. So who is this? Who is this? Matthew 24, 15 gives us an initial hint as to what this is referring to. The text there says in Matthew 24, 15 that whoever this is, is standing in the holy place. Standing in the holy place. Who is this? Well, we know it's none other than the Antichrist. It's none other than the Antichrist. This is the, the prince with a little p that Daniel chapter 9.27 mentions. This is the, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. You also read about the Antichrist as the, the beast in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. Most, most significantly, I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 to read about this scoundrel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. This is a significant text. Paul's writing two, has written two letters, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, to this wonderful little church at Thessalonica, both affirming their, their exemplary lives as a church, but also correcting their thinking regarding the future coming of the Lord. They were alarmed, you see. There were those in those days that were saying that the time of God's judgment had come, and many of these believers wondered why God was going to allow them as Christians to have the wrath of God poured out upon them as well. And so Paul also writes to correct their thinking about this. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, speaking of the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first, and listen to this, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who is that? The Antichrist. He is called, by the way, the man of lawlessness because he's the ultimate rebel who doesn't subject himself to God's rule or law. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He's the one who leads everyone to their ultimate destruction apart from Jesus at the end of the age. So he's called the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And here it is, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The ultimate blasphemy. The ultimate abomination. This is speaking of a, of a future time when the Antichrist elevates himself to the ultimate place of prominence during the Great Tribulation. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us that initially during the Tribulation he makes a peace treaty with Israel... But at the halfway point, he eventually breaks that peace treaty. He will then destroy the city and the sanctuary. By that time, the temple would have been restored to the Jews. Temple worship would have been reinstated. But what does the Antichrist do? He attacks um, Jerusalem. He, he attacks Christians living in that day and age. He attacks Jews. He murders literally millions of Jews. Revelation 13 says he will speak blasphemies against God, blasphemies against the name of God, blasphemies against the, te the, 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 uh, the temple. That's what this is referring to here. That the Antichrist will one day set himself up as the object of worship in the temple, declaring himself to be God, declaring himself to be the ultimate object of people's worship. That's what this is referring to here in Mark 13, 14. And it's this abomination of desolation that will speed things up during the great tribulation that will culminate in the return of Christ. And so Jesus, speaking to, to present, but especially to future generations, says when you see this ultimate sign, you know that the end is near. And it should evoke, secondly, an urgent response. 
That's our second point. The urgent response. Look at the middle of verse 14. Then those, when this ultimate sign appears, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Remember that all of this is first and foremost centering on Israel and Israel's future extending to the rest of the, of the world. And Judea is the region where Jerusalem is located and where the temple is situated. So those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Notice that Jesus says to, to flee. To flee. Why? Because for anyone who refuses to submit to the Antichrist, right smack at the center of Jewish worship in Jerusalem, you will be the first to be terribly persecuted. Therefore, run. Flee. Get out. You wouldn't expect that, typically. Maybe you would expect Jesus to say, uh, stand firm. Preach the gospel. But he doesn't do that. He says, run. Run for your life. There will be those who will be preaching the gospel. In Revelation, they are the 144,000 Jews, the two witnesses. A flying angel or messenger will be proclaiming the gospel. But if you are a believer during those times, you are to flee for your life. Furthermore, look at verse 15. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Whether you are at home or you're working, when this happens, don't think that you will have sufficient time to go back and get those things as if life will just continue as before as normal. The Lord is emphasizing the, the haste, the urgency with which people should flee when they see this sign. This is the sign of ultimate danger. You are to treat it like if your house was on fire. And a fire, right, as long as your family is out, you wouldn't dare think about going back into your house. Your very life is in danger. Any delay could be detrimental to your life. That's his point. Run for your life, says the Lord. He further elaborates on this sense of urgency, if you notice in verse 17. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Why does he highlight these? Because these will be especially vulnerable. Pregnant women can't run. Pregnant women can't move fast enough. Right, ladies? And furthermore, what mother wants to be pregnant or with little children and subject her, herself and her children to such terrifying things. I mean, nothing worse than for a mother not being able to protect and nurture her children. This was one of the saddest things for me to see in traveling to other countries a few years ago. We're in places where there was great poverty. I witnessed so many pregnant mamas, mothers of little children, who were malnutritioned, these children, who were uh, poor, poorly clothed. They had no ability to provide for the medical needs of their kids, not even clean water to be able to provide for them. It was, it was heart-crushing for me to see that. Well, those days will be even worse. The Great Tribulation will be even worse, beloved. In those days, the blessing of motherhood won't feel like such a blessing. Why? Because the last thing that you want to do as a mother is to have to care for your baby's life in the midst of destruction like that, in the midst of chaos like that, in the midst of carnage like that. Who would want to do that? He also adds in verse 18, But pray, pray that it may not happen in the winter. Why would this be particularly difficult? Well, just imagine excessive rains, streams that are swollen with water, overflowing banks, making it difficult to survive in the midst of such chaos and weather conditions. Imagine this happening amidst a cold winter when the fields don't produce their fruit as before or vegetation as before, where it's difficult to access food and provide for your own family, the basic needs for your own family. I mean, the Lord is keeping it real for us, isn't he? He's keeping it real for us, his readers. And you know, as a side note, as I was meditating on this passage and just these terrifying circumstances in the future, I just find it insightful that Jesus highlights individuals like mothers and children and people's physical needs. 
I find it so insightful about the heart of our Lord. It shouldn't surprise us. How often in Mark have we not seen these last couple of years the the compassion and the tender pity of Christ for the whole person? For the whole person, the whole individual. I mean, he came to reach people, didn't he? And we've seen him in Mark ministering to the sick, to the destitute, to the least of people in our society. And even now, as our Lord foretells what will transpire in the future, he thinks about people. About the effect and the impact of these circumstances, his devastation upon people. Poor mothers, either pregnant or who have babies. He's mindful of those who will experience hunger and famine and starvation. Real people will suffer. Beloved, behold the compassion and the tender pity of your Savior. How merciful He is. That as He sits at the top of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem at dusk, and He pulls back the curtain here about the future tribulation, Jesus shows that he still cares for people and loves people because he mentions them this way. We shouldn't miss this about our Lord. And it shouldn't shock us. Because in addition to being 100% God, he added a human nature to his deity, didn't he? He is the God-man. And so he, more than anyone else, understood human limitations, human feebleness, human vulnerabilities, human weaknesses, especially during a crisis like this, especially during the ultimate time of suffering, the Lord is mindful of people. Unless we forget, Mark chapters 14 through 16 are coming. Lest we forget, this is why he's going to the cross in Mark chapters 14 through 16. He came to earth to die on the cross to make it possible for people to be rescued from their sins, to be forgiven of their sins, to be reconciled to God, and to be given eternal life, and to enter into a future kingdom where people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord will escape the coming wrath of God. This is Christ. This was God's plan all along. To send His Son Jesus into the world to die and pay for our sins, to rise again from the dead, that by putting our trust in Him, we may escape the coming wrath of God. How merciful and gracious and compassionate Christ is. We need to be telling people about this, brothers and sisters. What's wrong with some of us? What's wrong with some of us? Anytime we're squeezed as believers, what should pop out of our mouth should be the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that people can have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they might escape these kinds of things, right? Love for people should drive that in us, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Learning about these things should move us and evoke in us Christ-like compassion, As we await the return of Christ. Christ Christ-like compassion. I wonder, as I challenged you last week, and let's see how many of you actually applied this. I wonder how many of us are so shaken and moved by the things that we're learning in Mark 13 that we have been driven to share the gospel and be sensitive to the divine appointments, to the people that God has put in our contexts of influence, and we're sharing the gospel with those people. I wonder how many of us took an opportunity just this week to share and witness with somebody concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. If I asked for a show of hands, how many of you would be able to do that? That's between you and the Lord. Are you being faithful to the Great Commission? Are you being faithful to proclaiming a Christ crucified and resurrected and ascended and exalted and returning to judge the living and the dead? That people need to put their faith and confess this, Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they might escape condemnation and the coming wrath of God. Are you preaching the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel, brothers and sisters? Listen to me. Don't just view this series series on eschatology as a time to simply satisfy your quest for greater knowledge and maybe to justify your insatiable appetite with conspiracy theories connected to the end times. Don't just do that. 
Don't just hear these things so that you can simply strengthen your position on the last days. Whether it, it agrees with what we've been preaching or it counters what we've been preaching. I'm just here to see if my position is going to be f- put forward or not. Don't just come for that. Boy, some of us love to argue. Some of us love to debate. Some of us love to pontificate on all that we think is going to happen, not even going to Scripture to see what's actually going to happen. Some of us love to do that, but we haven't shared our faith with a single soul in ages. We haven't witnessed concerning Christ and the good news and how people could escape the coming wrath of God, but we love to argue and we love to pontificate about things that we know very little about. This exposes where our hearts really are. You see, an understanding of the future end times should cause in us to should cause us to live different in the present time. Different. And at the top of the list should be that this should move us to compassion and pity for the lost. As we witness the growing hostility against God and the growing wickedness of our world, brothers and sisters. We should be discerning. We should speak up. Especially if you speak up about freedom and liberty. Let it be because you want the church unhindered to continue to proclaim the gospel. And that's why you want freedom of speech to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a lost world. Make sure of that. But above all, we should share the message of hope, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we should be moved toward. But we've seen the ultimate sign, the urgent response. Consider third, the unrivaled sovereign. The unrivaled sovereign. Look at verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. In case we haven't got the point, Jesus again reiterates that this period of time, known as the tribulation, and then the great tribulation, as things escalate, will be unlike anything anyone's ever seen, past, present, or future. It will be unique. How bad is it? Look at verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Remember, he's looking ahead here. He's speaking prophetically. He says, guys, this is so bad that were not for the Lord's intervention, not one person would survive the great tribulation. Not one person. For there will be great carnage and death as never before seen. At this time, obviously, the disciples don't know the specific numbers of just how many will die. They're figuring all this stuff out. He's teaching them this. But we know. We know from the book of Revelation how many people die. If you've surveyed the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19 describe the tribulation as consisting of three cycles of God's wrath or the outpouring of God's judgment that will bring about the death of millions. Three cycles of this, of God's judgment. The first cycle of these judgments are the seal judgments. The seal judgments. These are seals of scrolls that the book of Revelation speaks about. And these seven seal judgments cover the whole span of the tribulation, but primarily the first half of it, verses 5 through 13, as we've seen in Mark, covers these and refers to them as birth pangs. What will be... Evident during the seven seal judgments. Open warfare, as we said. Open warfare warfare will reign, not only between individuals, but also between nations and people groups. Worldwide famine, largely as a result of ongoing war and, and violence and crime and ongoing conflict amongst people and people groups. Natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, etc., will largely contribute to the loss of many lives. In some, the sealed judgments, listen to this, will wipe out one-fourth of the world's population just in the first half primarily of the tribulation alone. Imagine that. Can it get worse? Yes. Revelation describes how in the second half of the great tribulation, a second cycle of God's wrath is poured out on the world, and those judgments are called the great trumpet judgments a third of all plant life is wiped out 
A third of all marine life is wiped out. A third of all fresh water is eliminated. A third of the light from the sun, moon, and stars is gone. A third of mankind is killed. And Revelation chapter 9 tells us that that satanic and demonic torment is unleashed upon the people by ways of millions of, by way way of, of deadly scorpions and locusts that wipes out many, many people. And you know what the worst thing is during those times? You can't die. These people who are being tormented will wish for death, but won't be able to die. Imagine that. On top of that, we're told in Revelation 9 that a demon-possessed army of 200 million is unleashed upon the world's population so that millions more will die. Finally, there's a third cycle of God's judgment, the bold judgments of Revelation 16, which are targeted at the Antichrist and his evil followers. Terrible sores on all those who are loyal to the Antichrist will kill many. The whole sea will be turned into blood, killing all sea creatures. All fresh water of the earth will be turned into blood, leading people to die of thirst and lack of hygiene, etc. The sun scorches all of the people. Men will burn with fire. But listen to this. Yet they will not repent, but curse God. Yes, it's true. It's true. Read all about it in Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. In those days, the sun will cease to give its light. There will be utter and complete darkness. The final bold judgment in Revelation 16 brings about such a great earthquake that causes the earth's crust to be split. Huge hailstones fall upon people, killing many more. And even then, the enemies of God will blaspheme his name and not repent. Would you believe that? I mean, I've been tempted even as a Christian sometimes living here in this world to think, you know what, maybe the reason why people do the things that they do and the reason why people think the way that they do is out of ignorance, out of naivety. Maybe they just don't know better. Maybe if they're better taught, listen to me, the la- if the last days are any evidence of it, the reason why people do what they do is because they love their sin and rebellion against God. That's why. That's the heart of it. And even in the end, though they know judgment is coming, they continue to rebel, the book of Revelation tells us. All of this will culminate in the great battle of Armageddon, where at the tail end of the great tribulation, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will defeat Satan, the Antichrist, and his innumerable army of rebels. But I want you to notice what the Lord says in verse 20. There in verse 20. Unless... The Lord had shortened those days. No life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Notice who's in control in verse 20. The Lord shortened those days. The Lord chose. The Lord, he shortened those days. Even in the midst of this chaos and carnage, who's in control, beloved? God is. God is in control. He is sovereign over all of this. The sovereignty of God means that God is absolutely in control over all of the affairs, big and small, of his universe, and that he has unlimited power to do as he pleases, to carry out his plans and his purposes. There is nothing in light of the sovereignty of God that can thwart the plans and the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Even here, God is in control. This is so significant for us. To remember this is this is so faith strengthening. We may be tempted to think, as we see the things going on in our world, man, all of this terror, all of this chaos, all of this carnage. Poor God. Poor God. He's so helpless. Is he even in control over this thing? Absolutely in control. He is absolutely sovereign and completely in control over all of it. Ultimately, what we have here is the outpouring of God's righteous wrath above above all those people who have rejected the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have rebelled against the rule and the reign of God. Even in the midst of all of this terror, God is mindful of His elect 
of those who belong to him, of Christians living in the tribulation. You ask, Pastor, if believers are not here during the tribulation, who are these elect? Answer, they are people who during the tribulation hear the gospel, believe in Christ, and endure until the end, though many of them are martyred for their faith, and yet they will be in the presence of Christ because of God preserving them, right? God preserves them. And so as Jesus unveils the end of days, we should be comforted. Our faith should be strengthened that even then, God is the ultimate, unrivaled, sovereign king who will not lose one of his people. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters. That is so comforting for me. That is so encouraging to my own heart to know that my God is in control. Even when I don't fully understand all that is happening even though I don't have the answers to the things, the events that we see even in our world today, God is sovereign. He's in control. And even in the end, when things escalate, there's not one thing that can happen outside of His divine providence. Finally, please note, fourthly, the unmistakable caution. The unmistakable caution. Verse 21, And then, and then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ... Or behold, he is there. Do not believe him. He's warned before, back in verse 5, hasn't he, about this? See to it that no one misleads you. Verse 5. Here again, he cautions his readers. Why? Verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Oh, but they won't succeed, right? No one can snatch God's elect, God's people out of his mighty hand, but they will try from a human perspective. They will try. Once again, our Lord here is urgently cautioning his present and future followers to be vigilant, to be discerning, because the deception will be severe, growing and intense from those who claim to be the Savior of the world. As the worst things get, the more desperate people get, the more people are desperate for answers. And false teachers will come to people who are undergoing trials, who are undergoing suffering, who are looking for peace and relief from the hardships of life, and they will exploit vulnerable, weak, and naive people. What will they promise them? Relief, comfort, prosperity from their pain and their suffering. We continue to witness some of that exploitation happening in our culture today, don't we? As people are looking for answers, they're not going to the Word of God. They're not going to God for the answers. They're going, turning on the television, going to the news, going to channels where there are false teachers promising such and such a thing, such and such relief, prosperity. If you only send us this amount of money, or if you only pray this prayer, or if you name it and claim it, false teachers making false promises that the Christian is not to suffer. Scripture makes it very clear that even in displays of these so-called signs and wonders, that these originate from satanic powers. That, they, that these people may come in the name of Jesus, all the while being fueled by Satan himself. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will also future tense be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, that is, teachings ultimately to destroy people and harm them, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. The sensuality of these false teachers. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, there have always been satanic, demonically driven false teachers who exploit naive people. And all of this will only escalate during the tribulation. And the ultimate deceiver will be the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the prince himself, right? The little horn. He will be the ultimate deceiver. Jesus cautions, do not believe him. Do not believe these false teachers. Don't entrust yourself to people who spew out deception. And beloved, even today, be discerning. 
Test everything that you hear, everything that you watch, and filter it through the Word of God to see if it is true indeed, if it is really true of reality. Test this. Examine everything carefully. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Cling to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We need to practice discernment. And that means that you need to be in the Word. That you need to be not only reading the Word, but meditating on the Word. Memorizing the Word. Seeking to understand God's Word. When you read the Bible, you're hearing from God, you understand. And everything the Bible says is consistent with reality. How things truly are. Everything else is deception that is not consistent with what the Word of God says. Amen? Get into the Word. He adds in verse 23, notice, but take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus, in essence, is saying here, is saying here, trust me, trust my words. I am telling you these things, present and future generations, so that you would be prepared, so that you would arm your thinking with the truth and escape this type of deception. Listen, though Jesus speaks primarily about the future, His words are meant to change the way we think and live in the present, right? So how about you today? How about you today? In light of Mark 13, are you thinking and living in the light of eternity? In light of these last things that Jesus is describing, are you thinking and living in the light of eternity? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, for some of you, The question is this, have you given your life to Christ? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you come to acknowledge your sin to God? Have you come to confess to Him that you're a sinner who cannot save yourself based upon any inherent goodness which you don't have? You are a sinner. Have you come to confess that to the Lord? I cannot save myself. And have you repented of your sins, turned from your sins, and put your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ? Are you trusting in Christ this morning? Are you resting in Him? God's Word tells you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. Jesus nailed those sins to the cross. You can be reconciled to God by faith this morning. You can pass out of death into life, not only life in the present, but eternal life in the presence of God. By faith in Jesus. Don't Put this off any longer. Don't put this off any longer. What about for those of us who trusted in Christ? Those of, those of you whose souls are secure in Christ. This is for you, Christian. How are you living today? Are you thinking and living in the light of eternity? Let me ask you something. How was your thought life this week? How was your thought life this week as a follower of Christ? As you're seeing all of the chaos around us, all of the news, all just of the hatred and hostility, how is your thought life? Are you resting in Christ? Are you resting in His care of you and what the future holds for you as a believer and for the church? Or are you living in a perpetual state of worry, of anxiety, Thinking atheistically as if God were nowhere to be found in your circumstances. So you don't even go to him because you don't even think he cares. He's not even concerned for you. He does. First Peter 5 says to cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That's to believers. That's a promise. You can bank on that. Amen? You can bank on that. You can go to him. How about the use of your time? In the light of these heavy things here. Are you wasting your time, Christian? Ephesians chapter 5 says that we need to be redeeming the time, making the most of our time because the days are evil. And Psalm 90, Moses encourages there in that psalm to be praying this, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That we might live our days in the light of eternity. How are you living? Are you using your time wisely for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. See, this has implications for the way that we live in the present, right? 
learning about the future, learning about the last days, as Jesus is articulating here, has implications for the way that we, as believers, live in the present, encouraged and resolved to fulfill our mission on earth. And I hope that we are doing that by God's grace, especially during unique, unprecedented times in our country's history and in this world. There's a wonderful little poem that I often refer to in addition to God's word that is just an encouragement to me, and I want to read it to you in closing. Hopefully this encourages us to be living in the light of eternity as we understand these future things that are to take place. The poem is called Only One Life, will soon be passed. Some of you are familiar with it. Listen to this. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Let, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed. And what's done for Christ only will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father. This is the cry of our hearts. And if it isn't, Lord, let it be that by the power of your spirit. Grant us the grace as believers, as your children, to live in the light of what our Lord reveals here in Mark 13, the end days. To live for your glory in the light of eternity. And Father, I pray that for those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, that hearing about these things, that Lord, there would be a sanctified fear but more, a love response, a grateful response for the forgiveness that you offer them in Christ Jesus. May they turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ today and pass out of death into life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.